Welcome back to the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast from EgyptTravelBlog.com, hosted by yours truly. This episode is episode number six of the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast, which is going to be all about the Egyptian Museum, everything you've wanted to know and more about the Egyptian Museum, which, by the way, is officially known as the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities, but more commonly called the Egyptian Museum or sometimes the Cairo Museum. There are lots of museums in Egypt and in Cairo in particular, and lots of museums around the world with Egyptian artifacts, but no museum has more stuff from ancient Egypt than the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It is a must-see stop for anyone visiting Egypt. In fact, I put it as number two on the list of things you have to see when visiting Egypt right after the pyramids. If you come to Cairo for the first time and you don't visit the pyramids in the Egyptian Museum, you're going to be cursed forever by the gods, by the pharaohs, and by me and everybody else um, who's been there because everyone knows that a visit to Egypt is simply incomplete without a visit to the Egyptian Museum. So what's here? Why is the museum such a must-see place that you'll be cursed for all eternity if you visit Egypt and skip it? Well, Let's tease the museum's contents real quick, and then we'll get into a little bit more on what's resting within its walls in detail when we get into the the meat and potatoes of this episode. All right, let's dive in. What is so special and awesome about the Egyptian Museum? Well, a lot. As I mentioned earlier, no other museum in the world contains such an extensive collection of ancient Egyptian artifacts as does this one in Cairo, Egypt, and perhaps more remarkably, Nowhere else in the world can you get so close and intimate with Egyptian history as you can in this particular museum. There's some controversial reasons for that, which we'll get into later, but the Egyptian Museum is the hub of research, storage, and display of zillions of artifacts from Egypt's ancient kingdom, some discovered a long time ago and others discovered quite recently, actually. Remember, as I keep saying, Nearly all of Egypt is still an active archaeological site today. It's the only place in the world that's like this. People who live in Egypt have literally been known to cut holes in the floors of their homes and dig tunnels underneath them in order to find artifacts to sell. Now, this is highly illegal, but it's still done. The point being that there's still so much we don't know yet and so much is still being dug up and discovered in Egypt every single day that this goes on. So all of Egypt is really a living museum and an active archaeological site, but the Egyptian Museum in Cairo is the repository and display room for most of Egypt's history, and the sheer amount of history that you can see, and in some cases even touch, is simply mind-blowing. You've got a few surviving relics from the early dynastic period. You've got artifacts and treasures from the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom, the First Intermediate Period, the Second Intermediate Period, the Third Intermediate Period, not necessarily in that order, by the way the Greek period, the Roman period, the Ottoman period, and all of that covers thousands of years before countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, France, etc., etc., before countries in the West were even thought of. It's so easy to forget how much history Egypt has. The U.S., for example, is less than 250 years old. And in that time, think about it, we've had about 45 presidents and about 115 two-year sessions of our Congress, all in less than 250 years. Now think about Egypt and how old it is. If we just look at the period since the known dynasties of Pharaoh started in the early dynastic period, about 3100 BC, that's over 5,100 years of existence for Egypt. You can fit the entire history of the United States in there more than 20 times. So imagine the U.S. starting over from its founding to the present day 
20 different times. All the wars and conflicts we've been in, multiply that number by 20. All the cities and monuments we've built, times 20. Imagine 20 different sets of our 45 presidents. So that would be about, oh God, about 900 presidents by now. Imagine if we had 900 presidents by now. Of course, our presidencies are shorter than the lifetime reigns of most pharaohs and kings, but that's if they lived a normal lifespan, which many didn't. Lots were killed or deposed early by enemies or even family members so they could take over and rule or were killed off by illness and injury like King Tut, who famously died at about 19 years old after reigning as pharaoh for only 10 years. By the way, the uh, treasures found in King Tut's tomb in 1922 are on display at the Egyptian Museum and are by far the most visited exhibit in the museum, along with the actual mummies of some of Egypt's greatest pharaohs. So just think, back in their day, you and I couldn't even come within miles of these god kings and their majestic palaces on the Nile. But today, only a thin layer of glass separate you and me from their remarkably well-preserved and mummified bodies and faces within the Egyptian museum. So let's back up now and talk a little bit about how the museum came to be. Imagine yourself back in the 1700s and early 1800s in Egypt. Okay, the Ottomans still technically rule the area, but governance is actually pretty decentralized, and the local pasha is really sort of top dog in Egypt by then. Now, invaders and foreign visitors have been coming into Egypt for literally thousands of years and carting off its antiquities. And Egyptian, Greek, Roman, Persian, Arab, Ottoman invaders and rulers have also been recycling materials from the ancient monuments and treasures throughout that whole period, too. In other words, breaking down other rulers' monuments, temples, and palaces, and tombs, and using those precious materials for their own purposes, their own building projects. So back to the 18th century. Okay, imagine you're a wealthy European aristocrat and you're doing an adventurous tour around the Mediterranean. You see all this neat stuff in Egypt just lying around everywhere still. Now, local Egyptians would gladly sell you ancient artifacts they dug up, or if you just stumble across any yourself, you could just stuff it in your suitcase and take it back to Europe with you. Nobody was there to stop you, both Egyptians and foreigners. They availed themselves liberally of this situation where you could just pick artifacts up off the ground or buy them there and take them out of the country with you. Well, in 1798, Napoleon and the French march into town and kind of hang out for about three years. But their extended visit turned out to be quite fruitful for Egypt, or at least for Egyptology. Okay, first, a French soldier named Pierre-Francois Bouchard just randomly stumbles across a piece of rock that was recycled and used as building material within an old Ottoman fort near a town called Rosetta. But Bouchard notices that this piece of stone in particular in the fort came from somewhere else and has some writing on it that he actually recognizes. There are some of those undecipherable ancient pictorial scribblings on it that you see all over Egypt, what we call today hieroglyphics, but there are also some other languages on there too, on this piece of rock. And then there's a third language that he recognizes as still one in use at the time, Greek. Lucky for Egypt and all of humanity, really, This French officer immediately recognized the significance of this piece of debris that he had stumbled across at this old fort. You know, he or anyone else could just as easily have broken it apart or used it as part of a wall or something or cemented over the writing. But luckily for us, Pierre-Francois Bouchard was like, sacre bleu, and he saved it. He kept this piece of stone because he recognized its value. Now, this stone found near the town of Rosetta, as it was known then, is today what we know as, as I'm sure you've guessed by now, the Rosetta Stone. No, it's not just a piece of software you learn enough French and Spanish to get late on spring break with. It's one of the most incredible 
awesome, amazing archaeological finds in all of human history, if you ask me. In my humble opinion, it really is. So, okay, why is Rosetta, the Rosetta Stone, so groundbreakingly important? And what's it got to do with the Egyptian Museum? Well, to answer the first question, it literally unlocked nearly all of ancient Egypt for all of us. All those funny pictorial scribblings all over the temple walls and tombs and monuments all over Egypt that people have been looking at for thousands of years and not knowing a lick of what they meant, well, all those could finally be translated and read. It took scholars in England and France and a few other places about 25 years to actually decipher the hieroglyphic script from the multilingual Rosetta Stone carvings. And it wasn't an easy task by any means. But eventually, Jean-Francois Champollion, a French guy, cracked the code and the new field of Egyptology was born. No one had known for thousands of years, since the fall of the pharaohs, what was written on all these walls and stones and papyrus manuscripts. Even though the pyramids and these other monuments were like right there, as big as, well, you know, a pyramid uh, right in front of you when you're there, the history of the civilization had pretty much been lost until this incredible moment in history. It's almost like a Dan Brown fiction novel, okay? A French linguist cracked the mysterious ancient code and suddenly all of Egyptian history came back to life. It flooded in. We could now read everything and begin studying it. We could finally tell who all the mummies were, who all the tombs belonged to, etc., etc. And the stories just started flooding off these walls. Stories of kings and battles and ancient gods and their afterlife beliefs and mummification and so much more. I mean, we literally got the history of an entire civilization and one of the greatest civilizations in history that had virtually been lost in plain sight for almost two thousand years. And now, with this news spreading around the world and the newly formed field of Egyptology in full bloom, think about it, people were more interested in Egypt and Egyptian antiquities than ever before. So it was around this time, in the late 1820s, maybe early 1830s, that Jean-Francois Champollion started raising flags about the need to begin cataloging and, more importantly, preserving Egypt's treasures. Remember, people were still sashaying down to Egypt and just carting off artifacts left and right. And these new Egyptologists started saying, wait a minute, this stuff is more important now than ever, and we can't just have this going on left and right anymore. We need to start a museum to start collecting it and housing it all. Well, unfortunately for Champollion, he kicked the bucket in 1832, but another French Egyptologist actually followed through and organized the first Egyptian Antiquities Museum in 1863, which isn't around anymore. It was pretty small in size and scale and capacity and capability, so the local government there finally stepped up and put out a request for proposals for a new museum. Now, out of 73 proposals submitted, one was chosen from, all right, wait for it, a French guy. Shocker, right? The French were really all about Egypt back then, weren't they? The architect's name was Marcel Dognon. Not that that matters too much, but what is significant is that this, so they say, was the first building in the world built from the ground up specifically as a museum, instead of taking some pre-existing building and repurposing it as a museum. The newly constructed museum, the one we still know today as the Egyptian Museum, was open to the public November 15, 1902. It immediately became home to about 50,000 artifacts, but over the next 100 years or so, that number has swelled to well up over 120,000 today. Now, of course, all these artifacts aren't on display in the museum, but when you visit, I think you'll be quite impressed and pleased with how many are. The rest are held in storage by the museum and are honestly in varying states of preservation, but they're there. They're in the museum's collection. So now that we've covered the background of the famous museum building and the establishment of the museum as an institution to preserve Egypt's antiquities, 
Let's do a virtual walkthrough of a visit there so that you can get kind of a detailed idea of what to expect. I like to do these walkthroughs of these sites and give you kind of an idea of what it's going to be like before you get there. So when you do get there, you recognize things around you and you know what's going on. You're aware of scams. You can, you know, make the best of your visit. Okay. As I said before, the Egyptian Museum is located on the edge of Tahrir Square, which is Cairo's most central and most famous public plaza and ginormous traffic circle. You can walk to the Egyptian Museum from many of uh, downtown Cairo's hotels, including the Semiramis Intercontinental, the new Nile Ritz-Carlton, the Novotel, the Kempinski, the Nile Plaza Four Seasons, uh, what else, the Gazira Sofitel, the Fairmont, they're all right there. If you're staying at another property, or if you don't want to deal with the Cairo street crossing ritual, you can hop in a taxi and get to any of those places for about a dollar or two from any of those close hotels, or um, maybe a couple bucks more if you're coming from a hotel a bit further away. But make sure you use the mostly white metered street taxis. Don't use the ones that are black and white, but mostly black, because those are older. They don't have meters. There might be holes in the floor, et cetera, et cetera. The newer ones, the ones that have meters, are the ones that are black and white, but mostly white. A hotel taxi, by the way, will cost you a bit more. Around the same price as maybe a cab in a large American or European city, they jack up the prices for those because the hotels use a contracted private car service. It's not a real taxi, just FYI. Anyway, when you get to the museum's front gates, just look for the main entrance near the center and pass through the light security screening there first. And once you're inside the gates, you can go over to the ticket office and buy your entrance ticket. It usually hovers around $10 American pretty consistently, but okay, once you have your ticket, you can proceed onto the main entranceway in the center of the front of the building. Now, the museum goes back and forth from year to year on whether cameras are allowed inside, and there's really not much logic to it. Sometimes we go and they say no cameras, and other times they don't give a hoot. It can really help to ask somebody you're with or the hotel concierge at the time you're there, but just know that since they do change the policy occasionally, the person you're asking may still be wrong, so just don't be mad at them if they are. At the main building entrance, you'll go through another little security thing and then you'll be in. You'll be inside the actual museum. If you're by yourself or only with foreign tourists, beware that both the entrance to the museum gates outside and the entrance to the museum building itself are often where freelance guides will hang out and offer their services to visitors who don't appear to have an Egyptian with them. Some can be annoyingly persistent, but just politely and firmly letting them know that you're good if you just want to wander around on your own will be sufficient. These guys are professionals. Some of them may be a little bit persistent, but they're not going to hassle you and drive you nuts like some of the vendors will. And if anyone tries to tell you, by the way, that you have to have a guide to go in, feel free to roll your eyes and smack your lips at them because they're lying to you. Now, with that said, the Egyptian Museum is one place where it really can behoove you to have a guide with you at least for an hour or two. And that's because a lot of the objects in there, most of the objects in there, in fact, are really poorly labeled. In fact, most of them have, well, no labels or just some scant notation that doesn't really even tell you what the object is, maybe just as a minimal, minimal description, and certainly no mention of its significance. So you really won't even know what you're looking at, even if it has some kind of little label just literally telling you what the object is. Now, this is one of the worst aspects of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and it would have been so, so easy for them to have corrected this decades ago. And that's really frustrating for a lot of us that go there and take folks there. But alas, it's Egypt. We fully expect the Grand Egyptian Museum, the new one, to be much better labeled when it's finally finished. Okay, back to the current Egyptian Museum. Once you're in, there's really no right or wrong way to begin exploring. 
The public floor plan is like a large rectangular walk around on two levels, and it has a central um, a central courtyard in the middle of the building. It's enclosed, not an outdoor courtyard, but sort of a central area in the middle of the building and a rectangular walk around on a first floor and second floor or zero floor and first floor if you're European, however you categorize that. You can start out walking to the left, the right, go straight ahead into the central courtyard area. It really doesn't matter. While everything in the museum is incredibly important from an historical and archaeological point of view, even if you wouldn't know what you're looking at because most of it's not labeled or not labeled well, let's talk about a few of the major pieces and collections in there that you really shouldn't miss. And hopefully by hearing me talk about them here, even if you're exploring the museum on your own, you'll know the significance of these things when you come across them or you can look and ask for them if you miss them and don't see them on your own. Okay, first and foremost, the treasures of King Tut's tomb. If you remember from an earlier episode, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his patron, Lord Carnarvon, by the way, whose ancestral home is Highclere Castle, if you didn't know that, which is the real-life castle used in Downton Abbey. Anyway, Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon discovered a new and nearly undisturbed tomb in 1922 that turned out to be that of the boy pharaoh Tutankhamun, who ruled for about 10 years and died when he was only about 19 years old. Now, because he died so young and his tomb had to be rushed, It was sort of built underneath another tomb, which was a big no-no back then. So archaeologists really had largely overlooked the site of King Tut's tomb for decades, and grave robbers overlooked it for thousands of years before that because they didn't even think to look where it was because a tomb shouldn't have been built there. A properly constructed tomb should not have been built there. But when Carter and Carnarvon rediscovered it in 1922, all of Tut's treasures and possessions from over 3,300 years ago were still pretty much intact. It was really incredible. And thanks to the then re-emerging efforts of those French archaeologists and the uh, fledgling local Egyptian government to start instituting preservation laws and institutions, a lot of those treasures are now on public display for you to come marvel at. See how the past part that I spent so long talking about actually connects back in? Because they were doing all that stuff, because King Tut's tomb happened to be discovered when it did, and right after all that institutionalization of the archaeology and finding out what the hieroglyphics meant and all that stuff, because all these things occurred about the same time or sequentially, that's why all of Tut's stuff was preserved and we have it there for you to come look at today. The biggest and best pieces are actually right there in the Egyptian Museum. But there's one sarcophagus. They kind of had many layers of sarcophagi, like the Russian dolls except the Egyptians did it first, evidently. So one of the sarcophagi is still inside of King Tut's tomb down in the Valley of the Kings in Luxor, along with King Tut's actual mummified body, which you can also see when you're down in Luxor, but we'll get that in a later episode too. In Cairo, though, King Tut's treasures and several of his sarcophagi layers, I guess you could say, are located on the second floor of the Egyptian Museum near the back of the building. When you walk in the building, they actually start in a room on the right side of the building on the second floor, or if you're using European levels, the first floor, the one up from the ground floor. You'll start seeing objects like some of the board games that King Tut owned that were put in his tomb for his continued entertainment in the afterlife. You'll see things like small statues that were made for him that were supposed to represent servants that would come to life in the afterlife and attend to his wants and needs just like he had in his real life. You'll also see some of his footstools and beds and his thrones, all made of wood but covered or inlaid with gold. Then, as you get closer to the back center wing of that upper floor, you'll start seeing some more serious treasures, like alabaster jars that contained his organs, which were taken out during mummification. And you'll see these huge golden boxes, almost as big as some small rooms, really, like closets. Again, made that so that one could fit inside the other, kind of like those Russian dolls. Except maybe we should say Egyptian dolls now, because that's a lot older. 
Anyway, you'll see more personal items on display back there too, and glass cases along the walls, like his sandals, literally his flip-flops. Even an ancient condom is in the case, no joke. All this stuff is sitting behind thin glass cases, or in thin glass cases, and it's just so incredible to look at, but when you're looking at it, you should really take some time to think about some of these objects actually being right in front of you and available to you. I mean, these are actual objects owned, and in some cases used, by the great King Tut that you've heard about all your life. And it's only by a series of chances and miracles that they still exist and were found when they were so that we could see and appreciate them today. Us mere commoners who would never have been allowed anywhere near a pharaoh were his sandals or jewelry or condom or whatever back in the day. Now, at the very back center of the museum, on the same upper floor, there's a special room that has King Tut's finest treasures. You'll know these are a big deal when you get there because the room is actually modern and air-conditioned and the glass on the cases is thicker. This is where some of his most precious jewelry and ornaments and personal funerary objects are housed and displayed. These are literally the crown jewels of ancient Egypt and of the Egyptian Museum. But I tell you what, I'm going to do something I didn't plan to do in this episode, but it's getting so meaty and juicy and we're just having such uh, a great time talking about all this stuff. I'm getting excited talking about it all just because I remember it and I love it that I'm going to split this episode up into two tracks again, just like we did with the Pyramids episode, because there's so much there and there's so much here to talk about. And I like to keep these to about 25, 30, 35 minutes. I don't want to drag them out for an hour. So we're going to split this episode up into two also. And we're going to come back in the next episode and really get into talking about King Tut's most famous treasures in this back modern air-conditioned room on the upper floor of the Egyptian Museum. Talk about the crown jewels of Egypt. And then we'll go on to talk about some of the other significant treasures that are in the rest of the museum. The museum is more than King Tut, I promise. There's a lot of other really cool stuff in there, and I'm going to go into some things that you probably didn't even know that you should look for when you're in the museum or that you should make sure you don't miss. And I'm going to talk in detail about some of those in the next episode. So with that, we'll wrap up the Egypt Travel Blog podcast episode on the Egyptian Museum Part 1. We'll be back in the next episode with Part 2 on the museum. We'll also get into some scam alerts to look out for at and around the museum and a lot more that you'll really want to stay tuned for. So you can always reach me at john, J-O-H-N, at egypttravelblog.com. You can always check out egypttravelblog.com for a lot more on travel to and around Egypt. You can, of course, check out my travel company's website, egyptelite.com. And with that, we'll break it off here and see you in the next episode.